The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. We're joined by a man who has not lived no humdrum life. Winston Groom, he's the author of more than 20 books, everything from novels to history. His book, Forrest Gump, brought into the public consciousness one of America's most beloved characters. It was made into a major motion picture. Winston Groom's most recent novel, El Paso, was published in 2016, and his nonfiction work, The Allies, Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin, and the unlikely alliance that won World War II, was published in 2018. Winston Groom, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for being here. It's a great honor to be in your home. Thank you. I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about this area that we're in, the Gulf Coast region of Alabama. Well, there's not much of it. I think there may be 50 miles. And the Gulf Coast itself, I, 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 I lament it because I knew when I was growing up that there were three different places people went. They went to Dog River. They went over here to Point Clear. They went down to the Gulf. There were Gulf people, river people, and bay people. And I was kind of in between all of them in a way. But I used to know all the houses down at the Gulf. And they would build those homes down there. They'd take a, eight telephone poles and drive them into the ground, put plywood over them, uh, build up a big sleeping porch and a living area and a kitchen. And that'd be it. It cost about $2,500. Because when the storms came, it blew them away, which it would. You know, you didn't lose much. You didn't, nobody insured them. But then they started building these multi-million dollar homes down there. And that caused problems. And then the developers came. And now you can't even see the ocean anymore. Hmm. I mean, it's just, the Gulf is 40 miles south of here. That's the Gulf Coast. Yeah. And we're on the bay here. But the Gulf is just these big towers and I guess they don't get blown down by storms, but the, the, uh, the I used to know everybody's house down there. Now there are tens of thousands of people who are there, and they do their thing, whatever it is. And I don't go there. I mean, it's, yeah, it's just it's kind of spooky to to go to a place that where you could go and drive along the the ocean and see everything now. You can't see anything but these buildings. And that has happened, and it's happened in Florida, parts of it. It's happened in a lot of places along the sea. One of the few places it hadn't happened in is Suffolk County, New York. They outlawed that. You can't have that. I said, what they call the Hamptons. Yeah. And I used to live there, and they, that was one good thing about it. They said you can't build these big skyscrapers along the water. So they built all of everywhere else. <laughs> they were in that too. You just mentioned that you lived uh, in the Hamptons. What is it about this part of the country, the coastal Alabama region? What is it about this part of the country that you like so Friends. much? Friends? Yeah. I mean, I, I can live anywhere in the world I want to live. And I looked around all over the world, from New Zealand to South Africa to China to everywhere, and I said, you know, I I want to be with my friends. I grew up here, and it's it's hot in the summers, but it's very pleasant in the wintertime, in the springtime, and in the autumn. But we do get cold days, but I like that too. I like to have the seasons, but it's, it's, just, it's just your old friends that I think are important, and I had a lot of friends in the Hamptons, but unfortunately, all died. Hmm. And so I'm thinking I, I should have made friends with younger people. <laughs> but they were—they were, were I, my neighbors were, and friends with among the best writers: Kurt Vonnegut and Truman Capote, and Erwin uh, Shaw and James Jones, and uh, you know, Joe Heller. They—they uh, they were the best writers in America, and the most fun people that you could ever be around. But 
they were a generation older than I am, and they all passed away. And I, I lived in, in the city, too, in Manhattan, but that was the same thing. They, everybody who I knew either left the city or they passed on. Yeah. And I thought at some point I was coming home to see my own father, who was of that generation. And I'd come home in the winters because it got pretty brutal up there, no matter where you were living. And Hamptons was awful in the winters. Uh, nobody, everybody left there. And the city itself wasn't that much fun. It was cold and it snowed and it did all its thing. And I was coming home to see Dad, and I just, I'd come home for two weeks, and then it'd be a month, and then it'd be two or three months. I finally thought, you know, what am I doing? Hmm. I think this is where I probably belong. And, you know, I, I grew up in a, the society down here is fairly closed. It's like a lot of these old waterfront cities. They're much older than the interior of the state, like Mobile and New Orleans and Richmond and Savannah and Charleston. And they, they were they were there before anything in the middle of the state was they were run by the Indians. And you make friendships that are very lasting and are I think good to cherish. Yeah. And so I came back and and, uh, and wound up having a daughter and She's happily up at the university, and I, I don't regret a moment of it. Who would you say are the authors that have made the biggest influence on you? Oh, Lord. Well, you want to start with Shakespeare, or would you rather go some <laughs> more current? You know, the good thing about being where I was during that period, which was back in the mid-'70s to the mid-'80s, was knowing probably the best writers that this country had seen in in a generation. And I knew them intimately. I mean, I, uh, everybody had parties. And George Plimpton would always have big parties. And Kurt Bonnie would be there and, and Heller. And you know, I could go on naming people who were too famous even to, to drop names on. But... They were friends, and nobody talked about writing. Nobody said, oh, let me tell you what you ought to do. Uh-uh. That wasn't the way it worked. Where it worked was they were your friends, and you talked about whatever you want to talk about. Now, I could go on some funny stories about it, but I'm not sure your radio audience would appreciate them. <laughs> but, they, they, you know, it's just writers don't talk about writing that I know of. I remember uh, there was a young man. He came to a Lane's restaurant, which was the sort of the writer's hangout back in the 70s and 80s and even into later. And he was sent from the Kansas City Star. He was a reporter. And he read about, or somebody in his paper had read about this famous restaurant called Lane's, which is sort of my watering hole. And there was a table that she kept there. She called it the family table. It was full of for I don't know, uh, uh, divorcees and unwanted people from wherever people come into town, and that was the family table. She keeps you near everybody there. And it was the third table in, and this young man came to do a story, and he was supposed to get his deadline. It was like 11 o'clock that night with the Kansas City Star. And he came in at 5 o'clock in the afternoon thinking that's when people were going to have their dinners in New York, which was ridiculous. Uh, that's when they ate at Kansas City. They don't eat dinner at 5 o'clock in New York. And so he, Elaine was there, and she, I don't know what she did behind the bar, some kind of figuring with a pencil on a piece of paper. And so, But she liked this guy, and she told him, look, wait around, and about 8.30 or so, people start coming in. And so he did. She said, but now the rules are no pictures, no going up and talking to people, no doing all this stuff. You just sit there and somebody will come to the family table. Bruce J. Friedman will be there or Norman Mailer will be there or somebody will come in. And so he waited and he waited. And I was there that night with William Styron 
who was a very famous novelist. He just published Sophie's Choice. And we were having dinner with him and his wife and so on. And it was a star-studded night. And this poor guy was there. I remember Barbara Streisand came in and some gold may looking thing. And Woody Allen was there. He was always there. And Brian O'Neill was there, the actors. And, and he was about to jump out of his skin because he, he couldn't go up and talk to people. And so Elaine would go there every once in a while. Nobody came to the writer's table, to the, the orphan's table, whatever we call it, family table. And she would tell him, look, Somebody, they'll be here. Don't worry about it. And it got closer and closer to the deadline, and nobody came in. And I didn't know anything about this. I didn't know who that guy was there. Elaine told me the story later. But about 20 minutes to 11, she went over and sat down with him. She was a big old heavy set lady, Elaine was. Weighed about three or 400 pounds. And she sat down. How is it going? Well, she said, I, I don't know what to do. I've got a, 20 minutes to my deadline. And I hadn't talked to I see all these famous people, but I can't talk to them. He said, can, right, can you just tell me what, what do these writers, what do they talk about, the writers? Between them, I, mean, I see Gay Talese sitting over there, A.E. Hotchner, and all that. So what do they talk about? The hell, they talk about baseball, money, and sex. What is, that's the only thing they talk about. They don't talk about writing. I mean, that's <laughs> I don't know. I didn't see the story that was published, if there was one, in the Kansas City Star. But that was a story. And Elaine didn't use the word sex either. But I won't repeat that on the radio, what she said. <laughs> uh, but that that's probably very true. That I've never known writers. Every once in a while, I've talked to writers about technical devices. Willie Morris was very good. Willie was the editor of Harper's Magazine, probably the best line editor of, of generations. And every once in a while, I would ask him just to look at something I did because I, I'd been a newspaper reporter for 10 years, but switching from that to being a novelist is a big switch. And I just wanted to know if I said, am I doing anything wrong here? And he'd look at it and he'd say, well, you know, show me this. And he'd, he'd do a line editing job that was just magnificent. And I would learn from it. I, learned, I could learn more from two pages of his line editing than I could learn from four years in college of somebody trying to teach me how to write. And because he he would show you this, this is what you do. This is how to, just, you know, condense and, and don't be verbose and that sort of thing. Jim Jones, who was probably the best war writer, he wrote From Here to Eternity and The Thin Red Line, and I dedicated my first book to him, and I loved Jim. He was a great guy. He passed away before my first book came out, but he helped me a bit in just some technical things about writing like I said, Jim, I got all this dialogue here, and I don't think it belongs in here. And he said, well, let me look at it. And he did, and he said, you know, I, I've had the same problem. And he said, what, what you do is you can have one of these characters thinking, he said, what I did, not just thinking what the other character's thinking about him, but have him thinking about what the other character might be thinking about him. And there's so many ways. They're just devices. You, you know, you get older, more experienced, you can do these things. Uh, now they come to this second nature or more. Uh, but when you're just starting out in fiction, uh, they are important things to, to learn. And so I had some help that way, but not a lot of it. Um, I was lucky to be living with a fellow writer who'd been with the Washington Post, and I always thought his, he, he'd grown up in France and in Switzerland, and I thought his father must have been in the Foreign Service. Turned out his father was Erwin Shaw, who wrote The Young Lions and Rich Man, Poor Man, and so on, and he, Adam Shaw became one of my closest friends. 
And so we would read each other's stuff, I guess you guy characterize it, but that's what it was. And, you know, make critical analysis of it, such as we could. And that helped some. And then you had some editors who were either good or bad. I've had both. But somehow you muddle through it and get to where you can do it yourself. And I, I, even today, I, I welcome editorial help. Hmm. I don't need it as much as I might have years ago. But in El Paso, part of that book was a mess. And I personally hired a guy. I paid him a lot of money. I said, unravel this thing. Because I'm, I'm getting to where I, I can't, I've been working on it for so long, I can't see the forest from the trees. And he was able to do it. And he, he, had, he had been a, an editor at Random House previously uh, at Canop, where I, I, I had published. And he, I, I saw he, he was a young guy. And he just, every once in a while, you'll have a young editor who has the insight to look at something and say, okay, this is the way this ought to be. And that doesn't happen very often, but it sometimes does. And this happened with this fella, and he then went on to get his doctoral degree at Princeton, and is probably forever lost in the academia. But he was a good actor while he was there. One of the authors that you mentioned was Kurt Vonnegut. Yep. I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about him. Oh, Kurt's a good guy. He's a lot of fun. I remember one time he had a, a pool party. Nobody was in the pool, but he had a party there outside by his pool. He had a place there in Bridgehampton with a big swimming pool, and it had a hedge right behind it, a 20-foot privet hedge. And behind the hedge, there was an open field. And these people would get these uh, model airplanes and fly the airplane on it, crank them up, and make more racket than the lawnmower. And they would fly these damn things, radio control things. And it just infuriated Vonnegut. And I was sitting there with him and Plimpton and I forget who all. And he could hear this stuff going on behind him, behind the hedge. And he said, you know what I'm going to do? He said, I'm going to get a sub, submarine, put it down at the bottom of the pool. And said, I'm going to get a radio control thing, and it'll come up to the top of the pool. And the openings would happen, and big missiles will come out of the submarine, and they'll fly over the hedge, and they'll hit those damn planes and kill every one of them. <laughs> so he worked on that for, I guess, a year or two. Uh, I don't think anything came of it, but it was an interesting moment in time. <laughs> Kurt was a nice man. You were mentioning that your years as a journalist. I'm hoping you can tell us about how your journalism helped you when it came to writing books. Didn't hurt me. It hurt you. <laughs> well, not really. It's just a different thing than fiction in the sense that as a journalist, we were taught you don't fix things up. You don't clean up quotes. You don't. And... So I found myself in Washington, D.C., trying to write fiction in an enormously political town. And every time I would write, make up dialogue, which I did in my first book, I'd, I'd cringe. I'd say, yeah, I can't do that. So finally, I got the hell out of there. My, my friend Adam Shaw, who I just mentioned, he had left the post uh, Bob Woodward had, had been my opposite there, uh, and he went to do his Watergate thing. And so they sent Adam down there uh, to take his place at the federal court system. And I didn't know where Woodward had gone or why. I didn't really care. Although they started getting on my case when he started publishing all those stories. Because him and Bernstein, and we had fired Bernstein years before that. I didn't. They, I thought they were hype artists, but whatever it was, Shaw and I—I I mean, I didn't get along very well with the Washington Post people. They didn't get along with me or anybody else. They were very secretive and suspicious, and not terribly. They were driven, 
And my paper wasn't like that. And anyway, Adam came down there, and so we got to be friends. And he said, I said where can we get something to eat? I said, well, there's a cafeteria downstairs in the basement at the federal government. He said, no, I'm talking about good food. I said, oh, what are you talking about that? <laughs> well, I said, he go to Garfinkel's. They had a big department store there, and they had a tea room at Garfinkel's, which is about a block or two away. And the tea room up on the, I don't know, toward the top of the building. And you can get a good meal there, and you get a martini. And so we sat there, and we had a good meal and good martinis. And we figured out together that if, if we weren't in the court, well, who the hell was going to know what was going on? We could stay as long as we want. And we did, and we got to be friends. And he was, it turned out, good. He, he played tennis at Penn, and I played at Alabama. And so we got to be tennis friends and this, that, and the other. And it took me probably four or five months before I figured out who his daddy was. But he moved up. He, he left the post to write a book. And he called me up and he said, you need to come out here to this Hamptons. I said, what's that? And he said, well, it's a great place. And his father had rented a home there on the Georgia Pond, I think where Tom Hanks now has a place. And in those days, it was, I mean, it was two houses that were together, but they were separate. The one that was kind of fancy and the one we had was not quite fancy, but it was the same property. And uh, I went out there for a weekend, and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I mean, it was the, the beauty of the place, and it was all potato fields back then that were in bloom, and it looked like cotton fields almost, white things, and you're right on the ocean, and right off the ocean in this pond, uh, which was a big, like a lake, I mean, what we call a lake here. And swans and geese and everything. And there was a Bobby Van's restaurant where everybody went. And you'd go in there, and there'd be Truman Capote and Lauren Bacall. And I mean, and it, everybody was friends with everybody. And I got to know them all. And it was just a whole different thing than being in Washington, which was a political town entirely. And they were so wrung out over this Watergate business that everybody was doing their thing. And I just decided to get the hell out of there. And I did. And I, I did probably the most courageous thing I've ever done. I went to the editor of the paper and I said, I'm, I'm going to resign and I'm, because I'm going to write a book. And I knew at that point that if I failed in writing the book, that I had no way I could go back to the newspaper because it would just be too humiliating. And so I, I told him that, and I said, this is what, this is what it's going to be. And that's what I did, and the book turned out to be a success, and I lived happily ever after. But the Hamptons were, for a young writer, I mean, if, if you don't, didn't get discouraged somehow by the weight of the talent that was there, which was enormous, I mean, I can't even remember all the people, but they were, every one of them was so talented. Peter Matheson and people I haven't even mentioned, everybody had this enormous amount of, of talent way beyond my little part of it because they had done this for a long time. And if you don't get intimidated by that, which I didn't, I figured, okay, I'm going up, I'm, I'm playing in the pros now. And now we got to play like the pros. And I knew how to do that, which is simply said the best I can. And I lucked out. And then after that, so many of them passed away that, and, and all they moved. Uh, not many of them moved, but I, I got to be good friends with P.J. O'Rourke, who was the, the editor of the National Lampoon, and he became my running mate in the city, and, uh, and out there too. But it was a kind of an osmosis that led me finally, after a decade of it, back here. I just wanted, I wanted to come home. I finally said, you know, 
I got friends all over, and I got a lot of friends who are in the ground. And my friend Adam Shaw, he went back to France, and PJ went up to New Hampshire, and Charles Gaines, who wrote Pumping Iron, and so he went up to New Hampshire, and now he's in Nova Scotia. And it's just, you know, uh, I, I, New York had become a social thing. I had gotten involved in, to some extent, the old New York society. And once they get a hold of you, they don't like turn you loose. <laughs> and you have to go to these damn things with the black tie all the time. And down here, we don't do, we do white tie down here. Um, up there, they these, I don't know how you say it, these old ladies get you. And some of the young ladies. And I became a member of certain clubs and did this and that. And I mean, hell, I was I was in a club with Donald Trump, of all people. And, you know, you, you just get there, and then you say, well, what am I doing here? When you were writing the book, Forrest Gump, was there any kind of feeling that you had that this was an exceptional story? Like, this is going to be a story that's going to captivate people. No, I thought I was crazy. I thought that probably I would be hooted out of the hall. I wrote the thing in about six weeks, and I was never sure of it. I know that, I mean, Joe Heller, one time we were having a, a lunch to dinner or something together, he told me Catch-22 wrote itself. And I never really believed it because that's a complicated book. It's a great book, but it's complicated. But Forrest Gump did that. And he and I talked about that after the fact. And I don't even know why I wrote the doggone book. It just it came from a story that my father told me one lunch or whatever it was about he, he, he was born in 1908. And he grew up in Mobile, downtown. And so there was a kid in the neighborhood who was retarded, was what they called him then. And, and a young kid would be chased and teased by, you know, fellow people. And one day a uh, piano truck came and they moved the piano into the house his mama had bought him. And a couple of days later, this gorgeous music came out of the house. And I had seen at 60 Minutes program, you know, about the idiot savant syndrome, something like that, where you've got people who basically can't tie their own shoes, but they are geniuses with the math, music, something like that. And I thought after that lunch with my father, I thought I'm going to go back and I'm going to make some notes on this and maybe I can use it for a scene somewhere in a book. And by late that night, I had written the first chapter of Voice Gump. And I never had any notes. I didn't have any, what I call a net. I had no research, no nothing. I just said, well, what's he going to do today? And every morning it was like that. And that worked to the extent I got through with it. I didn't tell anybody I was working. I didn't tell my agent I was working. And when I got through with it, I thought, well, this may be a total waste of my time. But I sent it along to my agent. And because back then there wasn't any email, uh, sent it by, you know, in a, in, a, in a postal thing. And the phone rang, and I, I, all I could hear the other end of the line was laughing. And he was very, he loved it. He, was, he just laughed about it. And he was a great agent. He, he's gone now, but he, he was James Dickey's agent and uh, various other people. And he said, I love this. And I said, well, I'm glad because I, I, it scared me to death. I thought I'd been wasting my time. He said, no. And he said, so he sent it out, and it was bought, oh, within a few days. By double day, actually one of his former secretaries was working with Jackie Kennedy over there at Double Day. Double Day, Nelson Double Day used to like to hire wives of famous departed people to work for him to scout out things. And Jackie was one of them. And Gloria Jones is another one, James Jones' widow. There was some more. But anyway, Jackie gave it to Shay and said, well, you know, what do you think? And she said, I think it's, it, it, it's weird, but it's good. So 
we sold it and hell, but within another week or two, it had been sold to the, to the movies. And I was astonished as anybody else. And I thought what I'd done, I said, I don't know what the hell this is. But it turned out to be a big deal. And there you are. Hmm. What was it like for you to have your book be translated from the page to the big screen? <laughs> well, it's always, I mean, it, it, I think every writer wants their book to be made into a movie that's just like the book. In which case, the movie would be three or four days long. And, you know, your ass would go to sleep trying to watch it. So, that can't, that's not going to happen. They start tinkering with it. And they start tinkering, they're going to take this character here, that character, that's not going to do that. And, of course, my character in the book was six foot six and weighed 240 pounds and ran 100 yards and 10 flat. By the way, I mean, John Wayne had been dead for 10 years. Schwarzenegger didn't have the right accent. There wasn't a, if you got a big studio, which we had at that point, the Warner Bros., they're going to have to have a movie star. They can't have an actor. It's got to be a movie star to be a draw to make the people go to a movie, whether it's good or bad. So they figured that, that they couldn't find anybody. And they said, so I was, did the first two or three, I don't know, drafts of the screenplay. And they kept, finally they said, well, just write, make, make the character smaller. I said, well, how am I going to do that? I mean, because, you know, most of the time, because of his size, that was what drove the story along. Well, so write it for Al Pacino. I said, for Christ's sake. And then they said, Dustin Hoffman. And I finally said, look, I, this is a joke. And so they fired me, which is what happens to me frequently. Everybody, Fitzgerald been fired, Hemingway got fired, Faulkner fired. It made them pay you more money next time. But there comes a point when you cannot get along with the powers that be. And to try to alter what I had written in that fashion would be very difficult. And I think that screenwriters, professional screenwriters, they can do that because they didn't have to, they don't have a dog in the hunt. I did. And so I got the hell out of Dodge. And that thing sat there for eight years and nothing happened. And it went over to Paramount and Bob's and Mixes got a hold to it. And he had the other two elements, which he had a screenwriter and he had Tom Hanks. And that, you know, it worked. And so I, I can't, I mean, I was very impressed. Hmm. I didn't see the thing. They asked me to come to the some of the filming and I declined it because I had other, I mean, that wasn't my first rodeo. I had other movies made of my books and I just did it's the dullest thing in the world, first of all, to be on a movie set. They do the same thing over and over. And they get nervous about the writer being there. And it makes them nervous. And then it makes you nervous. And it wasn't my, I just didn't care to do it. And knowing that I'd go to the big premiere, but they gave me a premiere here. Very nicely, Paramount did it. It took a big old Carmike Theater over here and let me invite a couple hundred of my best friends and they had a big tent with refreshments and food and drinks and everything. And I watched the thing, and like all of that, the first few minutes, 10 minutes or something, when you watch words that you have written roll off the tongues of actors, it's a little bit unsettling. I mean, it's just, and you're thinking, well, that's not the way I would have pronounced that or said that's not the, what I would have done. Then I got into it. I just watched the show. When I was through with the show, I was stunned. And I sat there like, well, like, like you do in New York, which is you don't get up and leave when the movie's over. You, you wait for the credits. And these people, my friend, they don't nobody wait for the credits. They get up and go, show's over, show's over. And I sat there and they sat there. And I think they thought I was, I don't know what they thought of me. But I kept on waiting all these credits, and they had the graft and the whoever the thousand people that worked on the show was. And then I got up, and I thought, well, hell. And I said, thank you to everybody who was there. And they went out in this huge cheer. And I think that was, that was my reaction. I thought, you know, that's a damn good show. Yeah. 
And I, I never expected it because it was just different than what I would have done. But it captured the story. And Tom was the character. And I mean, it, it, everybody in it was, a, it wasn't a false note in that whole play that I could tell. Yeah. Why do you think that the character of Forrest Gump has found his way in so many people's hearts? I don't have a clue. When this thing came out, the, first of all, everybody liked it. And then, and then they started arguing about it. And then they started fighting about it. And they had this show on TV, I can't remember. I think it was before, it was right when cable, it was CNN. And that was the only cable network there was. And they had an arguing period on there in the afternoons. People got there and they fought with each other. And so they started arguing about, is he a conservative, is he a liberal? Is he, I, I don't know. And they would call me up and ask me. And finally, I went up. I said, look, I'm gone. I'm bird hunting. And I don't have a phone. And I don't want anybody to talk to me about this anymore. And well, hell, as soon as I get back, they started doing it again. So then I went up to North Carolina to the mountains. And I got a place where they couldn't get me. And I was way up there at Cassius. And I spent the whole summer up there. Just the rest of it and into the fall. I don't want to talk to anybody. But I would see these damn stories they would do and it was almost enough to make you want to throw up there was somebody I think it was in the New York Times he was a psychiatrist or something and he writes this big old piece for the New York Times editorial thing that says Forrest Gump is a horrible example because he he doesn't do anything everything just happens to him and so he has no motivation he has nothing, and so he, he's just a—he's a slob who lets things happen to him. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And I happened to know the editor of the editorial page in the New York Times, and I wrote her a letter, a very nice letter, from Forrest Gump. And she knew who that was coming from. And I just said, you know, what are you people thinking up there, publishing this kind of stuff? I mean, it's just—it has no bearing whatsoever on what I wrote. And they never published a letter. That's when I quit reading the New York Times. That's been 25 years ago. Hmm. You know, it's just all that stuff that you see when something gets this big, and it got big for a while, and it just got to the point where my feeling was that I just wrote a simple character. I got into his head, and my mind was there. And everybody's starting to analyze it like it was some big old deal, and it wasn't. It was just a simple character, a simple guy who did his thing, and he lived a pretty simple life. But that's what happens in society where you've got people who have to insist on some strange principled reasons where there aren't any. It's just it was a simple story. What a big deal. And suddenly, I, I, I'm, I'm facing all that. So, anyway, you know, what I do is what I do. I try to make my characters as real as possible, as likable as possible. If they're unlikable, I make them that too. But I don't have second or third or fourth intimations behind it. And some writers may have. Huh? That's their problem, not mine. What was something from the movie that wasn't in the book that you think that they, they you really wish they had included? <laughs> well, I love C. Sue, but you know, um, that, that's a problem. It's a gorilla, you know, the, the, the orangutan. But that, uh, it's hard to get a orangutan to act properly. <laughs> and I know I've been not only involved with movies, I've been in movies as an actor. And one time I had to be in a movie with dogs. And they never want to ever get in a movie with dogs. They won't ever do what the hell you tell them to do. <laughs> and I was in Mississippi shooting this damn thing in August. And the dog, it took all day to get the dog to catch a piece of meat. But, you know, the, there were parts of the book that were farce. Farce is hard to do. I mean, French can do it in plays. It's hard to do in a movie if you want to have a serious movie because it's hard to separate Forrest 
from the reality. And for us, the movie that they made was reality. But I would love to see the spaceship in the so. But you know that would have been extremely difficult to do correctly. And so I thought, you know, I didn't have any problem with that. And when I, I talked to the to the uh, producers. And they had all kinds of people who were interested. They had, I had to have a lunch with that guy. What's his name? The, far, the, uh, the Fonts. Henry Winkler. Yeah. He wanted to do it. And various other people wanted to do it. And everybody's got a different take, which is okay. But, you know, I, all of a sudden, my pie is getting divided up real quick. And that was one reason I thought I got out of it. I thought, you know, let, let's let them go on and do it because that's what they do. I write books. They make movies. I'm assuming they know what they're doing. <laughs> Hell, they sure did. I mean, they, people ask me, well, would you rather have had your way of writing the movie that way? I say, you're nuts. It's a billion-dollar show. Well, you can't complain about that. It's a big show. It's a huge show. And uh, it just let me do all this, you know, whatever I want to do. But there were things in it. I was thinking you were going to ask me what was in it that they put in there that I didn't, well, not that I didn't like, but that was, that was a common, that, that, that box of chocolates. Yeah. That's a bunch of shit. Excuse me. I forget the microphone's on. <laughs> I did. The only mention of chocolates was the first line in the book where Forrest is conducting a monologue and he says, let me say this, being an idiot is no box of chocolates. Yes, I remember that. So you got the screenwriter, he turns it on its head and all of a sudden it's rolling off the tongues of a billion people. Do you have any appreciation of how many boxes of chocolates I have received over the years? Everywhere I go and I make a talk. They have a. They gonna give me a box of chocolates everywhere, and look, I can't complain about that. But I wouldn't have written a corny line like that if somebody put a gun to my head. I mean, nuts. But that's what you know, they can do. That they get away with it, and the people love it, and that's fine with me. Interesting. <laughs> Well, what did you like the most about the, the film adaptation? Uh, I mean, I, I, I liked it because it was wildly popular, and I made a lot of money off of it. I mean, you know, yeah. various ways. They, they had to do a stretch to get everybody included because they didn't. the deal was the usual Hollywood deal where they screw the writers and the, everybody else. Well, they, had to, they did, in fact, change that, and I, I appreciate that, but... No, I mean, it, it, it could have been just an average movie, and it wasn't. I mean, I still, I mean, there is not a week that goes by that I don't get from all parts of the world. I have a website, and I get people wanting autographs or commentary or something about that movie. That movie is 25 years now. Yeah. And I can't believe it, but it is. And they got a 25th anniversary coming up, and I got a, an interview in Garden and Gun Magazine, of all things, of which I happen to be an editor, but <laughs> I didn't ask for that. But, the, you know, it, it's, it has ingrained itself in the American culture as big almost as any movie since Gone with the Wind that I know of. It has annoyed people. That's good. It has gotten people very emotional. I, I know that people who are intellectually challenged have written or their friends or parents or somebody had written and say how much they appreciate the thing. And so, I mean, look, you, you, can't, you can't beat this, this kind of success. can't beat it. Yeah. It's, it was, it's a big show. It's a big deal. I guess I, I don't like to say that I've just been another one of the middle writer. Uh, I've written a lot of things, and I, I do well with them. I mean, after that, I thought, you know, Every writer wants to keep on writing novels. But if you're lucky, you got one book that's going to be really a success. Maybe you'll have two. And if you want to start looking over in England, places like Dickens, you got more. But 
you, you don't have much more than two or three books that are going to be a big deal. And this was my big deal. And so I thought, well, I see people, the writers, and they're novelists, and they don't know what else to do. They keep on writing novels. And it's not that they're not good writers. They don't have good ideas. You lose the ideas. It took me 20 years to write El Paso. It was a novel. Yeah. So I started writing history. Because I thought, you know, I, you look at it, Fitzgerald and Thomas Wolfe, they drank themselves to death. Hemingway blew his brains out. Now, I wanted a path I particularly wanted to go down. So I thought, well, you know, I like history. So I went to my editor at that point, Atlantic Monthly. And I said, I want to do a Civil War history. He said, are you nuts? He's just come out with this gumpy. Yeah. I said, no, I want to do this. He said, what do you want to do? I said, well, I want to do about the Battle of Nashville. Because I knew he was from Nashville. So he said, oh, really, you want to write? I said, yeah. So we did it, and it was very successful. I mean, for that kind of thing, it, it was successful. And I had recently acquainted myself with Shelby Foote who was an extremely nice guy. And so I started writing Civil War books, and then I started writing other books that were military history because I have a background in the military, not that I'm a professional soldier, but I was a, you know, an officer in Vietnam and all that. And, you know, I just, I, I, let me look at them. They're all interesting, and I enjoy doing every, every one of them. I'm, I'm writing a book now called The Founders, about Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and Alexander Hamilton. And I'm learning things. Interesting. And I have gotten a little following somehow that allows me to do it and actually do it successfully financially. And my publisher's happy. I'm happy. You know, what, 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 you can't go wrong there. And if I get a, an idea for another novel, I'll do one. But it's got to be a good idea. It's got to be something that I'm just not writing because I have to write a novel. Because I think that a lot of writers, that's where they sink toward the end. You look at the, the, the histories, literary histories, and they kind of vanish. They've written books that people, they'll read them, but they're just not that good. And you have to have, the idea has to be good. Like you can't beat Fitzgerald when, you know, he came up with basically one good book. And that was probably the best book that's ever been written in American literature, I think. But he couldn't ever repeat it. And so there he went. He should have been a Romanian. <laughs> so what inspired you to want to write this book about the Founding Fathers? I think when I do these histories, I think that they're successful because I'm learning while I'm doing them as opposed to having taught them for 40 years. I mean, I, I'm, I'm getting aware I'm, I'm, I'm too educated now because I've read a lot and all that. You know, it's something that I, I, I'm, I got fascinated with. And one of the things I'm fascinated with is the hatred. I can't believe it. I mean, the, the, the press back then is worse than it is now. It's horrible. And there were no rules. There were no... I mean, you know, now they believe the libel. Not very little libel, but back then it, it was basically duels. I mean, you could say just so much and they'd shoot you. But I've never seen the ferocity of opinion in the modern press like it was, was going on back in after the Revolutionary War. During the war, everybody's a very good friend. After the war, everybody hated each other. I mean, Hamilton hated... Jefferson, Jefferson hated Adams. Everybody just hated everybody. And I finally figured out that it was because none of them knew really what the hell they had done. I mean, they knew that they had created a new system because everything was a monarchy and nobody knew what, what a democracy. I mean, you can look back to Greece, ancient Greece. That didn't work. So they, they, they were a republic. I mean, they had people who were elected to do things, uh, not just every, not mob rule where everybody votes. But nobody quite understood how the thing was going to work. And so they were petrified that they were going to screw it up. And they began to hate each other. And then the, the, the two sides, which are now Republican and Democrat, began to diverge. 
and they've been with us ever since. Washington hated every minute of it. He, he said, this is going to ruin the country. Well, jury's still out on that, but, we, uh, you know, that's what you've got. I always like to end the interview. I like to give the guest the stage. What would you say to anybody who's tuned in? Completely open-ended. What would I say to them? Yeah, anything at all. Shit on them, it's late. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm glad you tuned in. But how, I mean, I, I appreciate anybody who wants to pay, you know, to, to stand and listen to my BS. That's fine with me. <laughs> and, and if I've got something to say that that will help them in any way whatsoever, that's great. Or just entertain them. That's great too. But I, I don't stand on a pedestal. I don't have a you know particular point of view that I want anybody to, to have. I'm just parole English major, as I've said before, and that's what I do. I'm not a you know, trained journalist or a trained political science person or whatever, and I enjoy doing what I'm doing. Well, I have just one more question. What would Forrest Gump say about the world today? <laughs> I don't have a clue. Um, I think he's, he's washed up. I mean, I don't think Forrest... Forrest would he he probably would would be speechless about some of these things that go on as I am. I, I, I can't when I look at, at some of the stuff that goes on today, it is appalling. Just the the hatred and the the rancor and the viciousness of everybody nattering at everybody else and. I've lived through periods when that didn't go on. I lived through periods when it did go on. Uh, I watched it as a journalist. I've watched it. I lived in, in, you know, Washington like that. I've lived in New York where I basically kept my mouth shut. But what Forrest would say, I don't, I don't know. I'd have to make something up. I don't, I don't, I don't think that would be a good idea. I mean, I think let it, let it rest there. <laughs> Well, Mr. Groom, thank you very much. Mr. Groom is my father. <laughs> Winston. <laughs> thank you. Pop, pop, doodly, zing, bang, doodly, knock, cock, cheap, taboo. Bippity, pot, a cut, a gee, da, po, pop, bed, like a teen. Oh, get a gig, madam, no, a gig. Oh, good, a gig, a gig, a gig, a gig, a gig, a